Yo, what's up? This is DJ Yellow from the world's most dangerous group. What's up? This is DOC, the Diggy Diggy motherfucking doc. Yo, 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 what's up? This is your boy, Z, man. What up, dog? This is E-Shot. This is Jerry Heller, motherfucker. This your boy, DJ Paul K.O.L. from 360 Young Busy Ball. Vice World. This your man, Matt Minor. Hell, raise up. Yo, this is DJ Ready Red. What up, what up, what up? This is the real Rick Ross, and you're listening to me on the Murder Master Music Show. Um, you know, still building it out of my dorm room. 
but I did see a vision really early on. I mean, one, one of the things I remember was somebody giving me a book about Rolling Stone magazine, and I learned about the history of Rolling Stone. It was started in the late 60s as a small underground newspaper, but it was built into the voice of the generation that, that you know, it represented in the 70s and the 80s. And I saw a lot of parallels between rock and hip-hop, but I also felt and saw that hip-hop would be bigger because, as, you know, as you probably know and, you know, listeners know, I mean, rock music, rock and roll was created by black folks uh, as well. Uh, but, yeah. you know, that's part of the history has generally been written, you know, written away, and most people just associate rock with white people's music. Um, and uh, But hip-hop was taking a different path. You know, by the mid-'80s, you know, uh, we had Run DMC, we had all these other artists, you know, selling millions of records, and, um, you know, we had this audience of, you know, all people, white, black, Chinese, Latino, everybody that was loving it if you were young back then. Um, but it was generally, you know, the black creators that were becoming the superstars of, of hip-hop. And so I really saw hip-hop as this incredibly, you know, sort of powerful uh, culture that would be able to transform our world in so many ways um, and believed it would be bigger than rock and roll. So I've, I've, I've really had that vision of where we are today, you know, since the mid 1980s when I really got started. Um, and then kind of segueing to your, the other part of your question, as far as breakbeat and what I'm doing now, um, you know, the interesting thing is that hip hop is of course bigger than it's ever been before. I mean, it's that, you know, it's just grown and grown and grown year after year after year. And it's at its high point now in terms of just global popularity of the music. Um, but, one thing I've, I've felt for a while now is that there really is a void uh, when it comes to a brand or a platform that serves the hip-hop community, you know, comprehensively, you know, across the culture, across the lifestyle, you know, uh, not just focusing on one aspect of it, uh, the music or other things that have become kind of the more visible parts of the culture. Um, you know, what I've seen is, you know, there's a narrative that's kind of been pushed through the music that's been divisive across the generations. So you have this idea or this narrative, you know, oh, you know, I don't, the older people, I don't mess with this, this new mumble rap. That's not real hip hop. And the younger people pushing back, oh, you know, you're just old and out of touch, that type of thing. And um, to me, that's dividing the hip hop community because, you know, the way I see it, if you're 51 and you grew up on hip-hop and you're, you know, someone else is 21 and they've grown up on hip-hop, you might not like the same music today. There there are musical differences across the generations. Um, but the way that you think, the way that you look at the world, the way that you take in, you know, watching sports or watching a, a news program and the, the reactions you're going to have to how things are depicted or presented is going to be kind of in common with other uh, others that have, have also had that influence of hip-hop on their way of thinking and looking at the world. And I think that's something that's just this void out there that, that nobody's tapped into because hip-hop has kind of got broken into different, you know, pieces and parts and it's fragmented, but as a whole, I think what Breakbeat's goal is to do is to be 
uh, a network that, again, kind of comprehensively serves the community, represents our points of view across all different subject matters, um, again, whether it's news, sports, business, health, travel, you know, uh, history, you know, anything, but uh, ties them all together under one brand, similar to what The Source did. I mean, The Source was a magazine of hip-hop, music, culture, and politics, and it, it, it provided a platform, you know, for the community to grow, to stay informed, to stay in tune, to have our perspectives pushed out there and in the mainstream, you know, against the mainstream media narratives that were being told and, again, even today still are being told. I think that there's a lot of folks in the media that write about hip-hop that probably, you know, do like hip-hop, but I'm not convinced that they really necessarily understand the culture and, you know, the, the responsibility that comes with you know, being a media platform uh, in the hip-hop community. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you got your start in uh, radio, and it's kind of come full circle now. You know, um, that's got to make you pretty happy to be back in radio, so to speak, even though it's it's podcast format. but Right. Right. I mean, podcasting is like this, this new thing also, I mean, that, that's so exciting and, and it's, it's growing. I mean, it's not new, and of course, it's been around for many years now, but it's obviously going through, you know, an explosive phase right now. And it's still really, you know, as popular as podcasting is becoming, it still has a huge upside. And when it comes to, you know, to hip-hop, I feel like, you know, we have some great hip-hop podcasts out there that, you know, all kind of, you know, do their thing, get big audiences, the Drink Champs, the Joe Buttons of the world, things like that. Um, but it's it's a few, and it's spread out. It's not unified under one platform or network. And I think there's so much room to bring new voices and new talent into the podcasting world to uh, explore the journalistic side of podcasting. That's like such a big part of the mainstream podcasting industry, but there's nothing there for hip-hop when it comes to these, you know, narrative uh, journalistic storytelling formats that are huge in podcasting. So we're doing a lot of that with Breakbeat. Um, I realized, Scott, that like a podcast network is the solution that, magazine companies have all been trying to figure out for 20 plus years of a digital magazine. We've, we've heard that term for 20 years, but there's not one example that we can point to of a successful digital magazine that people, you know, consume on a regular basis. It's just never translated, but a podcast network is really that. I mean, you take different subject matters that you would find in a magazine, you know, have different columns on fashion or politics or whatever the different sections of a magazine are. And these are now podcasts that, again, are presented with the, the cultural kind of, you know, nuances of, of hip-hop um, and, and our kind of unique perspective on things. So that's another interesting thing about the podcast network as the starting point for what I'm, I'm doing with Breakbeat. And it's just a starting point. We have a lot of other plans in the future for Breakbeat. We have a whole technology side to the company that we're developing now and we'll introduce, you know, next year. And, um, you know, the podcast network is, is literally, you know, just getting out the gates in the last couple of weeks. We have some, uh, you know, some great shows, um, you know, and, and great talent that's already taking off that I can talk about more as well. 
Oh, yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. What kind of uh, shows you got on the network right now that we can look forward to? Um, well, okay, the first show that's out now is called Don't Call Me White Girl. Um, she's an incredible talent, a, a, uh, a young black woman from Philadelphia, super funny, super entertaining, but also really smart. And, you know, your po- her podcast will not only make you laugh, but it's going to get you thinking about important things, which is, you know, what I really like about her. Um, and that's kind of that balance that I think we need uh, to help, you know, grow things is, is you know, uh, a balance between those things. And uh, she was uh, – she's the one behind the Why You Being Weird to Me thing that's been huge on social media the last month or two. Uh, she created that. It's gone probably one of the biggest viral moments uh, of the year on social media, Why You Being Weird to Me. That all started from her. She was a guest co-host on Million Dollars Worth of Game with Gillian Wallow, that their, their big podcast last year for like three months. Um, she was on there. And she's just an incredible talent. I think she's going to be one of the biggest female, you know, personalities in our culture, you know, in, in short order. I call her kind of – one of the unsigned hypes of breakbeat, you know. Um, and a, another one that uh, is coming soon, it's not out yet, is the Funny Marco podcast. It's called uh, The Wrap-Up Show Starring Funny Marco, who a lot of you guys probably already follow on Instagram. Hilarious dude. Uh, you know, I just think what he's been doing on Instagram is one thing, but he has a certain level of comedic, you know, style and, and genius that's, that's special. And, and I think when you see his podcast, it's going to take things to a whole nother level with him. Um, I'm getting ready to launch my podcast, the Dave May show. Um, you know, this will be really the first time for people to hear from me on a consistent basis. You know, as, as you probably know, uh, Scott, I was always, you know, more of a behind-the-scenes guy over the years at the source. I wasn't putting myself out there. I didn't want the attention or the credit and that sort of thing. But it's a different world we're in now. Um, I think I have, you know, a really interesting story that people will want to learn about and also really an interesting perspective and types of conversations that I'll have on my podcast with different, you know, both iconic and current figures from our culture I think will be you know, different from the type of conversations that anyone else could have with them just because of my experience, my background, the relationships I have going back to the inception of so many of of our biggest, you know, stars from hip-hop's careers. Um, So I'm excited uh, to get my podcast rolling. Um, And then on this kind of journalistic side of podcasting I was talking about, uh, we've got one show that is out that people should definitely tune into on all the podcast apps. It's called Culturati, um, and it's hosted by Kierna Mayo. Kierna, one of the most, you know, legendary uh, journalists and media executives that hip-hop has had in the past, you know, 25-plus years. Started at the source, co-founded Honey Magazine, um, has done incredible things, very, very well-respected. And, you know, she's finally bringing her voice and, you know, personality out to the world through through a podcast instead of, you know, kind of like me being behind the scenes. And she's having some incredible conversations. Uh, it's a very highly produced podcast. It's not just, you know, the standard podcast, interview podcast. Um, and then the other two are in what I would call the kind of uh, documentary storytelling side of podcasting, again, which is huge. Uh, we've got two big stories um, that we're in production on. 
One is the story of the unsigned hype column and the source. It's an eight-part series we're producing right now uh, that will tell the whole backstory. How do how do we create unsigned hype? How do we you know find Biggie? How do we find DMX, Mob Deep, Common, Capone and Nori, Eminem? I mean Pitbull, David Banner. All these artists got their starts in unsigned hype before they ever had a record deal. And it's an incredible backstory to that column, one of the most influential magazine columns of all time that will be told in our uh, limited series podcast coming out soon. And the other one um, that I want to talk about is the Larry Hoover story. Um, I'm doing his story in a tent. Free Larry Hoover, uh, absolutely, hopefully getting his story out there for the first time in a very in-depth and accurate way will have some, you know, help in getting him home where he deserves to be with his family. But he has an amazing story. It's never been told. This is the first time his family have participated in the telling of his story. Uh, and they entrusted me and Breakbeat to do that. Um, and we're getting incredible news, you know, information and talking to people that have never talked before. And people will learn a whole tremendous amount, not only about him and why people consider him a political prisoner um, and the amazing things he was doing in the 80s and 90s, turning gangster disciples into growth and development and uh, starting organizations like 21st Century Vote um, to, to create political empowerment to help our inner city, you know, communities. Um, and, you know, why his story is relevant today with the gun violence problems we see in Chicago, and there's a lot you know, that you can learn from the history of that city and what happened with Larry Hoover that will help you understand better why we are still in this terrible place we are with the gun violence epidemic uh, in Chicago and, and really in other cities as well, you know. Um, but I'm really, really happy that we're, we're doing that podcast, and uh, I think people are going to really love hearing that story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, Larry's been uh... – you know, in there for a long time, and he definitely, like you said, he needs to be home with his family uh, first and foremost. So, man, I, I really commend you for doing this, Dave. You really, uh, you know, uh, got a lot of dope things we can look forward to. Um, how did you get involved uh, with wanting to do tell the Larry Hoover story? That's I feel that that's a story, like you said, it's never been heard, and it's quite frankly, it's, it's overlooked. Jay Prince is like one of the only guys speaking on it. Um, what what, yeah. what brought your attention to Larry Hoover? Well, um, things. I mean, of course I've known about him, but uh, about four years ago, I uh, five years ago, I left Atlanta where I had been, and I moved out to Chicago. My my girlfriend is from, from Chicago, born and raised, and she's really the one that brought me there. And I spent a year there and just met people and learned so much more about his story um, than I had known, and it just got me even more excited about finding ways to tell his story. Um, Jay Prince is one of my, you know, longest uh, and best friends, you know, of, in life and, and throughout hip-hop. We've had a relationship over 30 years. He's, you know, one of the only people, you know, real stand-up people in the business that uh, somebody that, I, you know, I just really fuck with. And um, so he kind of introduced me to Larry's immediate family, his wife and his son, and that was kind of how the relationship started. And when I finally got my plan together to launch Breakbeat, they were one of the first people I went to uh, to talk about 
working together. And I've been living in Chicago again this year since January, so I've really come to love that city. I see, you know, the need to, 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 to provide a lot to help the city. There's so much talent. There's so many stories there. There's so much untapped, you know, stuff that I think I can help. Uh, bring to life and benefit the city. So um, the city has, you know, embraced me, and um, I'm just really, really happy about that. Well, that, that's real good, man. I, I hope uh, Mr. Hoover can come home. Um, you know, same with a lot of other guys, you know, like C. Murder. There's a lot of people that have been down for so long. It was good to see Matt come home after all those years. So hopefully uh, this will happen. Uh, I want to go back. You were talking um, – you know, um, about unsigned hype, um, and you mentioned Eminem. I want to ask you, in this era of, you know, cancel culture and things like that, do you think if, if the uh, the infamous tapes would have came out um, now, it would have had more of an impact than it did back then? Because I kind of felt like he got a pass. Yeah, I, I'm sure it, it would have been different in today's world, you know, where there's social media and so many other things that um, didn't exist back then. Um, so, yeah, I think it would, have, it would have been different. When you guys brought that out, did you expect it to have more of an impact? Like, were you shocked that the hip-hop community kind of just let it slide? Um, yes. I will say that it was a little surprising, um, but I also really want to say this. You know, um, first of all, the source helped discover Eminem and create his career. Um, you know, we put him in unsigned hype before he had a deal with Dre or anybody. Um, he became the first white person ever on the cover of the source when he got his first cover. Um, and, you know, he won Lyricist of the Year at the Source Awards, I think, in, in 99 or, or 2000. Um, so we had a lot to do with supporting him and helping launch his career and giving him credibility, et cetera. Um, you know, when the whole situation happened and, and kind of got started, you know, I don't think it – it was never personal with Eminem. You know, I didn't – I've never really gotten to know Eminem. I've met him once in passing, um, but I've never had any conversations with him, so I don't know him personally. Um, you know, the whole situation was more about the concern over what his success might do and was doing to the direction of, of hip-hop as a whole. And, you know, in some ways kind of, you know, looking back at our history and seeing you know, what happened, like with rock and roll that I, I talked about, um, you know, a little earlier on this. Um, and hip-hop, like I also said, is obviously different from rock and roll and has followed a different trajectory. Um, but, um, you know, that's really what it was about. And, you know, in some ways, when I talk about the, the void and the opportunity that I see in the media world for hip-hop today, you know, I think that some of that, you know, relates to that in, in the sense that, you know, this, I, I call it sort of like, you know, hip-hop has become, in a way, a safe space for white folks, meaning hip-hop always embraced people of all ethnicities. You know, me personally, obviously I'm white, Jewish, um, you know, 
I've never felt like an outsider in hip-hop. Um, I do, you know, consider myself a, a visitor in a sense because, you know, as a white man, I've always recognized that, you know, this is a culture that uh, was born out of, you know, the struggles, the pain, the hardships of, you know, primarily our black and brown communities that have been victimized for hundreds of years and still today by racism, systemic racism, all the things that have created the kind of generational poverty and other, you know, many other things that that uh, plagued those communities. Um, and so I always felt like that I had an obligation, you know, to recognize that and do my part, you know, through the source of providing, you know, information that was accurate and that represented the hip-hop community and, and, in a sense, a kind of a, a pro-black point of view. You know, I think you can be pro-black but not anti-white, anti-Chinese or whatever. I think all people of all races that truly love hip-hop understand that and that, you know, we have to do more to correct these wrongs. And um, so I think... You know, it's it's kind of messed up when you look at the world today. Hip-hop has become this, you know, multi-billion dollar business all over the world, generating billions of dollars. Um, but our communities, our, our inner city communities, now it's spread, you know, into suburbs, but our disadvantaged communities are still suffering, if not the same, worse than it was 20, 30 years ago when hip-hop was talking about all these issues of, you know, police brutality and, and many, many other things. Um, and that's something that bothers me that I feel like hip-hop has had an obligation and has, has should have done more to change those conditions and that it could. But in some ways, this kind of safe space allows people to operate like, hey, you know, I'm in this too and it's cool. But if they're, they're kind of operating on a surface level, um, and not really taking in that kind of perspective that I just shared and the way I always looked at things and operated at things. And, and that's kind of the, the message that I would have hoped, you know, Eminem would have been pushing at an earlier stage of his career um, and that, you know, it, you know, we would, you know, would have, I think, helped uh, the community and the culture. So, you know, I think in some ways, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing with some of the impacts of, of things, you know, related to his career still today. Um, and, um, you know, I just think we should be talking about, about this stuff. And, you know, I hope to be able to have a conversation with him and, you know, Paul Rosenberg and, and you know, kind of get back to where we were and, and have some, you know, productive dialogue and, and not get engaged in, you know, like a personal you know, fight that really got, you know, way out of hand. Yeah, because you guys, you know, if you guys can come together on something, that could be huge, too. You know, the people would like to see that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm certainly looking forward to that, and uh, hopefully uh, that could happen in the near future. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, I just got a couple more for you, Dave. Uh, I'm going to let my yeah. uh, homie in from France uh, ask you a question, because this is a global phenomenon, like you're saying. Hip-hop has no barriers, yeah. and music truly is the universal language. 
Um, the next question I got for you, though, Dave, is uh, 1995 Source Awards. I can imagine uh, you could cut the air with a with a knife, man. What was the uh, the atmosphere like at that uh, particular award show? I think it was the second one, right? Yeah, that was the second big awards. You know, I had started the awards uh, as like a day on Yo! and TV Raps a couple years before. Um, and then was able to turn it into a full-blown, you know, show with an audience in 94. So that was the second one, and the first televised uh, awards um, was, was that one in 95. Um, so, um, you know, it was a, it, you know, the awards were amazing. You know, the first time all of the hip-hop community and industry could kind of get together in one place and really celebrate ourselves and our culture and our accomplishments and our creativity and all the things that were being overlooked by the rest of the world still in those days. And, you know, people just put hip hop down like, Oh, you know, you don't have any talent. You're just rapping or, you know, you're just sampling things to make music and there's no talent involved. And, you know, people didn't respect the culture and, and all the talent and creativity. So that's, was really the, the impetus for the source awards. And I, I had the relationship that I had carefully built over the years with all of the key players, you know, whether it was Suge Knight or whether it was Jay Prince or, um, you know, Lior Cohen or uh, Puff or, you know, whoever the case may be to really get everybody uh, kind of aligned to come together. And, and, and they did, and they all supported me with the Source Award. So, um, you know, that night, obviously, probably one of the most, you know, uh, you know, most important and most well-known nights ever in the history of hip-hop with all the things that, that occurred there. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'll say a couple more things about that. I mean, first of all, you know, Suge Knight really, really supported and helped make that show a success. Um, you know, he was the first and only label that really stepped up and spent a whole bunch of his own money on the show. When you watch the opening set of the Death Row performance with the jail cells and explosions and everything going on, he spent over $100,000 to build that set of his money to support the awards and make it look like a bigger deal on TV, which is what we wanted, and we didn't have the budgets to, to do all of that stuff ourselves at that time. So um, other labels, like I said, all supported and all came out, but nobody went to the extent that he did. And um, you know, he brought a lot of people out from California. I mean, I think he had 60 or 70 tickets, um, you know, up in the front area where the industry was seated. Um, so, um, you know, I, I think he said what he said. It, you know, I think this question about why he said it, I, I think, um, you know, one, one important thing, too, is, you know, going into that night, um, there was no known association between – Death Row and Tupac, there was no known beef going between Death Row and Bad Boy. Um, you know, Pac was in jail. Pac had his beef with Puff and Big and Bad Boy that he had been vocalizing from jail. Um, but nobody knew that he was going to get out a month or two later and join Death Row. Suge probably knew because he had been doing meetings, I'm sure, with him, but nobody knew that. So there was no going into putting that show together. I had no concerns. There's no feeling that there was any kind of rivalry there that that I needed to be, you know, concerned about. Um, and uh, you know, 
people try to sort of make it seem like the Source Awards was like the kickoff point to, you know, what ends up happening with Pac and Biggie. Um, and, and that's just not fair or accurate either. Um, you know, the real beef starts a month or so after the Source Awards in Atlanta when Suge Knight's uh, man, who was an employee at Death Row, head of promotions, um, Jake Robles, that I, I knew and was a great guy, you know, when he gets shot and killed outside of that Jermaine Dupri party, allegedly by somebody that was with Puff, that's when the beef went to an astronomical, you know, violent kind of very tense level that we saw play out in the months and, and year or so after that. Um, so I think people, you know, should understand that a little more. Yeah, there was tension, and Puff was upset when it happened. You know, I rushed to the backstage. I was out somewhere walking around in the theater trying to check in the vibes of the audience and, you know, heard the, the commotion. You know, it's a New York crowd. You know, the front of the building was just the industry, but – the other 4,000 seats throughout the theater were all mostly people from New York area who had purchased tickets to be there. So, you know, of course, they had a very pro-New York uh, perspective, which is why you hear outcasts get booed when they win the award, and, you know, you hear the reaction to Suge's comments and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, you know, I rushed back there. Suge and them were just kind of like running through one side of the backstage, just kind of, a lot of uproar and commotion going on and rah-rah. But then on the other side, Puff was there, and he had a bunch of people around him that were all upset. And, you know, but I, I was able to talk to him, and, you know, he really took the higher road and, and, you know, didn't want it to escalate into anything else. And, you know, he helped calm it down. And, of course, Snoop really is the one that, that kind of turned the tides in the in the room that night when he goes on stage a few minutes later and, and makes his – famous, you know, speech, y'all don't love us, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. That really helped, you know, cool things out a bit. And, you know, there was no fights. There was no punches thrown that night. There was nobody shot, stabbed, nothing like that. Um, and a lot of times people try to kind of put that image around the Source Awards. Uh, yeah, it was real. It was it was hood. It was authentic. You know, it was unlike any other awards show. But, you know, there was also a level of, of respect that was there and camaraderie that was always part of the Source Awards uh, over the years. It was a catalyst for other award shows to, uh, to follow. I mean, you guys really, again, kicked it off. Uh, you're a trendsetter, Dave. <laughs> you really are, man. Um, Thank you. I'm going to bring on the homie Sim from France. I know he's got a couple questions for you real quick. I really appreciate you. Sure. Uh, Sim, you there, brother? Sin, can you hear me? Uh, Dave, I guess we ain't got, Sin's not here. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. Wait, you there, Sin? No, no, we ain't got him. I'm sorry about that, Dave. Um, but before uh, we do get out of here again, I want to thank you for taking time to do the interview. Um, and I want to give you the floor, you know, um, man, let them know what you got coming and, uh, where they can find everything. And, uh, it's all yours, brother. Awesome. Yeah. Well, just, um, you know, yeah, just really, um, want people to check out what I'm doing with breakbeat. I think that folks will, will enjoy and like the content that we're putting out so far. Uh, right now you can uh, check out two of our first podcasts. Don't call me white girl. Um, you can find that on, 
all the podcast apps, you know, Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, um, you'll find Don't Call Me White Girl. Um, it's charting. It's doing. It's one of the top charting uh, new podcasts already. Um, and also you can watch the visual version of her show on the Breakbeat Media YouTube channel. Uh, so search that up, Breakbeat Media on YouTube. You'll see the channel uh, where all of our visual shows will be living right now. Hers is the first one. Um, Culturati is the other podcast that you can listen to right now. Um, really, really interesting podcast. Search that up, hosted by Kieran Mayo. Um, and then, you know, in the next few weeks, just keep an eye out. The Funny Marco podcast will be coming. Uh, the Dave May show will be coming. Oh, I have another show called Trapping Anonymous. Incredible show, super interesting, talented host uh, who does, you know, really interesting, super interesting interviews anonymously with people who kind of go into all kinds of incredible stories of what goes on in, in their world, whoever they may be, whether they're a drug dealer, a, a stripper, a plastic surgeon, a financial investor. I mean, they just tell the insides of a lot of the things that go on that people don't know about in these industries, and he has some really interesting uh, conversations with them. So be on the lookout for Trapping Anonymous coming soon as well. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, David. Uh, the brother Sin is here now. Uh, Sin, you there, brother? Yes, yes, sir. Hi, hi Scott. Hi, Alessandro. Uh, Dave Mays. Um, yeah, I got some questions about. Uh, uh, can you tell us about the, the King of New York Biggie cover? How can the ID with uh, the Twin Towers in uh, July '95? Yeah, that was uh, one of you know obviously one of the classic you know covers of the source of all time. Shot by my my good friend and and, and such a great person uh, who passed earlier this year, uh, the photographer Chi Modu. Um, Chi took a lot of the most iconic images that you saw on the cover and inside the source for years. Um, so uh, yeah, I think that was just you know at the time you know Big was was blowing up and he was kind of bringing you know New York City on on his back with him. Uh, the West Coast by that point had already begun to dominate the industry, you know, with uh, from the release of The Chronic and on, on out, you know, Death Row really, you know, and that sound was dominating hip-hop. Um, and, you know, of course, Craig Mack, you know, really kicked things off for Bad Boy, but Big just started to get that kind of following, you know, um, and people just fell in love with him. So it was it was natural to think of a way to show him. And we took pictures, actually, in front of, like, I think they were taken in Jersey City where the backdrop is the Twin Towers when you're standing there um, on the Jersey side. Um, and you see some of those photos out there. The actual cover photo, I think, wasn't, you know, like the background was put together with the image because that worked out better than the actual photos did. But, um, yeah, that's a, one of our iconic images uh, of all time. Yeah, it was iconic. Uh, back when uh, Cashwell and No Limit, uh, I was such a the market with uh, pen and pixel graphics covers in your magazine, Evan. Did you be surprised by the storm of the Dallas South in '98? Um, let me understand you, the whole question. You said it, in '98, did I understand about cash money? Yeah, he was basically yeah, saying uh, uh, the way the South stormed the hip hop scene. Uh, did that take yeah. you by surprise? Um, 
you know, I think maybe a little, but again, you know, I was, I was, you know, I had been messing with the South from the beginning, you know, the ghetto boys um, and even, you know, Luke and what he was doing, you know, those are the guys that really opened the doors for Southern hip hop um, over the years. And then, um, you know, then you have Outkast and, you know, we were right there, you know, Outkast wins new artist of the year at the Source Awards. You know, we loved them. We bigged them up, um, you know, and, um, you know, we knew that they were bringing something, you know, totally new to the game, and that really opened the doors for the South. And then, you know, Master P comes in with No Limit shortly thereafter, and, uh, you know, and then followed by Cash Money. Um, and uh, so, no, I mean, it wasn't a total surprise, it was the natural progression. You know, you'd had the East Coast, you'd had the West Coast, um, and now, you know, it was time for the South to really uh, emerge, and it's never it's never left. You know, the South still kind of continues to be the hub that dominates hip-hop in a lot of ways and, and, and sets the trends for hip-hop. Um, so, yeah. It definitely took over. Well, Dave, thanks again. I got one more for you before we get out of here, brother. Uh, when Murder Dog came on the scene, you know, we were a, a little bit of a different publication at that time, you could say, with the imagery and, and the, the artists we were interviewing. Uh, man, what were your thoughts about us, brother? Uh, what, what did you think about us when we uh, first really started to blow up? Um, yeah, I, I, I followed what you guys were doing, and um, I thought it was, you know, definitely needed. You know, you guys came in, you know, at kind of like a different – you know, angle on things and coming uh, out of the Bay Area and representing, you know, that side of things um, in a way that needed. And Bay Area is also, you know, obviously a, a huge part of the history of hip-hop. You know, a lot of people think more of L.A. when they think West Coast, but, you know, the Bay obviously was was right there. I was just with Too Short yesterday, you know, one of the original pioneers coming out of the Bay Area. And, you know, there were so many amazing you know, artists and, and talents from that area over the years. Um, so yeah, man, it was it was it was a cool thing. And, you know, that that just you know they just showed there was different, big enough that there was room for, you know, different niche type of approaches. You know, in the media space, and um, you know, you guys had that authenticity um, that really you know helped you guys make a name. I think. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. Yeah, we had a good twenty year run and. You know, when it ended, wanted to keep it going, and this podcast was uh, the outlet to do it. And I thank you for being a guest today, Dave. And uh, please, everybody, support Breakbeat. Make sure you support everything Dave is doing. And, uh, man, we'll check you. you out real soon. Make sure to support Dave. Thank yeah. you very much. No doubt. Ideas and things, so, you know. Feel free to connect with me, um, and let's figure if there's, you know, some things, opportunities for things going forward. Yeah, definitely. Would love to, man. Uh, you know, uh, combined, I think both of us got about 70 years in the game, you know. So, uh, <laughs> you right. know, it's definitely uh, definitely a huge honor. You take care of yourself, and, uh, man, enjoy the Windy City. That's where I was born and raised, man. I, I love it. You know, I oh. love the food. You know, so, continue to, to, to absorb yeah. the culture up there and just have a good time and be safe, brother. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. Great talking with you. Peace.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.